And welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight, your retro talk program for nostalgia and baby boomer stuff. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. Today, we talk about baseball. Well, welcome to another edition of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We have a great show for you today. Our good friend, George Halalakos, is back with us. And, Mike, it's good to have George with us again here. We have a great show lined up. And he's got something exciting to talk about to, I would say, if not 90%, 89.9% of the Baby Boomer listeners out there. How many spring or summer afternoons do you remember going out to the baseball park, wherever that baseball park was? It could be it could be Ebbets Field. It could be uh, Wrigley, oh, Dodger yeah. Stadium, Candlestick Park. Any number of them, the 50s or 60s, the, the heyday as far as I'm concerned of, of baseball when it was a game. And going out there with your dad or your mom or your dad and your mom, your family, maybe your favorite girl or your brother and sister having a hot dog and mm. having a cold drink and just watching a game, getting out in the fresh air. George is our man in the stand. Yes, he is. And uh, I think every red-blooded American has good memories like that of baseball and summers and springs past and first of all we want to welcome george back george welcome back to the show it's a pleasure to have you with us again thank you gentlemen it's a pleasure to be back and george uh, you and your dad have written another great thesis uh this one on baseball we have a lot of ground to cover here but let's start with this the careers of sandy koufax and don drysdale were part of your childhood well, actually, Gilbert, I, I like to look at it and say that the careers of Drysdale and Koufax were my childhood <laughs> because uh, from the late 1960s through the mid-60s, uh, this righty-lefty Hall of Fame pitching duo, they hurled the Dodgers to four National League pennants, to three World Series championships, and at the same time, they broke records that had stood since the early part of the century. And it was the dominance and personas of both of these individuals that occurred at a very interesting time uh, in our history because mm -hmm. baseball had just come to the West Coast in terms of uh, MLB format. Mm -hmm. And it was a time that uh, united everyone in Southern California uh, into a virtual community of baseball fans sure. where people tuned in on their transistor radios. A very yeah. different time. Absolutely. And there's so much to cover here. Let, but you know what? Let's go back even further. Let, let's talk a little bit about, even way before that, uh, let's talk a little bit about the westward migration that began in earnest in the mid-19th century. Because actually, believe it or not, this does have something to do with this. It certainly does. I mean, if you consider that uh, following the mid-19th century with the California gold rush, there was an earnest exploration and an uh, outward push towards the west. There's the old expression, go west, young man. And uh, this continued uh, and in such a way that new industries were formed on the West Coast, namely the motion picture industry, and then, of course, the defense and aerospace industries. And so with that migration and the huge population buildup, what was the next logical thing? You got to have baseball, sure. national pastime. Sure. And so when the New York Giants and the Brooklyn Dodgers made their transcontinental move from the east to the west. 
in my mind, that sort of put an exclamation mark on this westward movement that had been occurring for nearly a century by the wow. time the uh, two teams moved west in 1958. So not only population had to move, naturally move west, not only business industry, but also entertainment. Yes. And yes. baseball was certainly a big part back then, as it is today, of our, of our country's entertainment. Very much so. Very much so. And I think that what was interesting at the time was that until that move, there were no Major League Baseball teams west of the Mississippi. How interesting. How if, interesting. If you, that the, the farthest team in the west was St. Louis. Wow. Which, by today's standards, sounds archaic. It does. Yeah. What, so what years, uh, George, did they move uh, here? Did the, uh, the Dodgers and Giants... This was in 1958. 58. What prompted this move? Was there, is, do we know what prompted them to move from the, from the east coast to the west coast? There's been a number of books that have been written on the subject, uh, and it's been a topic that has been so thoroughly researched and debated. But essentially, it was a financial decision. Mm -hmm. uh, you had uh, Walter O'Malley, who owned the Brooklyn Dodgers, who wanted to have a brand new stadium conceived and created uh, that would accommodate uh, the demographic shift that was occurring in the city at that time. And for uh, political and other reasons, that didn't happen. And so consequently, he picked up the team and, and moved it out west. At the same time, uh, he had talked with Horace Stoneham, who was the owner of the New York Giants, their uh, rival in the neighboring borough of New York. And uh, Mr. Stoneham saw the opportunity to move to San Francisco, and they thought that a simultaneous transcontinental move would allow them to transfer what was then the most intense rivalry in all of professional sports to the West Coast and establish uh, a strong and dominant presence. Because both teams were doing extraordinarily well. In fact, the period of 1949 and 1958 was a time in which it was either the Dodgers, the Giants, or the Yankees were in the World Series. So Stoneham and O'Malley chose the right time to move because their teams were at the peak. Both teams, uh, George, you've written, uh, basically moved intact to the West Coast. Yes, they did. Talk to us a little bit about that in the Boys of Summer. It's such a remarkable thing to think about that in Southern California, the love affair with the Boys of Summer, this is the team that Roger Kahn wrote about in his wonderful book in the early 70s about the team that he covered in the early to mid-50s in Brooklyn, largely was able to transfer to Los Angeles intact. And so this legendary team was able to make the move west and they were able to attract the same following and loyalty that they had when they were in Brooklyn. The only difference was, sadly, was that Jackie Robinson was not part of the group because he had retired one year earlier. He had retired uh, after the 1956 World Series and the Dodgers and the Giants remained on in New York for one more season, 1957, before making the move west. Mm -hmm. But other than Jackie Robinson, most of the great stars of that era, Pee Wee Reese, Duke Snyder, uh, you know, just to name but two, Jim Gilliam, another, they all made the move west. Willie Mays, mm -hmm. Orlando Cepeda, sure. all of these guys came, uh, came west. And we were talking before we went on the air, George, that interestingly enough, you know, we're talking in, in particular about uh, Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale. They arrived here in, in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, sort of at the same time the TV was coming up. They were, they kind of arrived right at the right time. They most certainly did. And what I think is extraordinary to think about is that in very short order, these two future stars 
they were the stars that the stars came out to watch. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at who was in attendance at Dodger Stadium, I mean, it was not uncommon to find uh, people like uh, Doris Day, Danny Kaye, Bing Crosby, Phil Silvers, Milton Berle, to name just but a few, mm -hmm. that were in regular attendance at Dodger games, and they immediately established a bond with uh, the Diamond Stars, so to speak. And then, of course, because of the proximity, it provided an entree for many of these baseball uh, performers to uh, enter into the uh, television and motion picture field, even mm -hmm. on a cameo basis. And indeed, they did make uh, appearances on many shows as guest stars, right? Oh, they did. Uh, Don Drysdale, for example, uh, appeared on uh, two famous Western programs, The Lawman and The Rifleman. The mm -hmm. Rifleman, of course, had Chuck Connors, who had played with the Dodgers several years earlier. Right. So that was an interesting connection. And then uh, later, Drysdale actually played himself uh, on The Donna Reed Show, and he oh, had... Okay. Uh, his wife and daughter with him appearing as themselves also at that time. Sandy Koufax uh, was able to appear as himself in the famous TV series Dennis the Menace and mm -hmm. later in Mr. Ed. Ah, okay. And that was a classic, the one with Mr. Ed, because what ends up happening is that uh, Leo DeRocher, who was a coach of, with the Dodge at the time, somehow enlists the help of, of Wilbur Post and Mr. Ed to come and help him uh, oh. resolve the team slump of the Dodgers. And what they did was they included when the Dodgers ended up winning the National League pennant and the World Championship in 1963, and they incorporated that into the Mr. Ed series. So it's, yeah. a, it's a TV classic, and that's sure. indelibly engraved in people's memories, but particularly in those early eras of classic TV. Yeah. Leo the Lip DeRocher. He's the one. <laughs> Leo the Lip. Wow. Hey, we talk about the 63 Dodgers. My favorite year at the Dodgers, and I grew up, I was an L.A. boy, was the 62 Dodgers. 62 Dodgers, very interesting time in baseball, a lot going on. But we talk about Maury Wills, and George, you mentioned uh, Sandy Koufax, and of course, Don Drysdale. My favorite Dodger, especially this 62 season, was a guy by the name of Tommy Davis. Tommy Davis, two players set Los Angeles Dodger team records in 1962. One being Tommy Davis, he was batting, as you know, in the heart of the Dodgers batting order. He had a season that in any other season in his career probably would have earned him the National League MVP. And he set Dodger records with 230 hits, 153 RBIs, but he got beat out. He got beat out by his teammate Maury Wills. And we talk about the Dodgers of Los Angeles. I think a lot of the attraction, a lot of the spotlight was on the Dodgers because they were the Hollywood team. You know, L.A., Hollywood, glitz, glamour, movie stars... The movie stars, the professor. Yeah, yeah we had the Dodgers. And yeah. Dodgers were celebs in their own because I think a lot of it was because they were the L.A. Dodgers and they were kind of classy, fun guys, too. Uh, there's always something going on with the Dodgers. You mentioned Doris Day. Well, there, as you, I don't know if you may or may not remember, there was some intrigue between Doris Day and Maury Wills there for a while. My understanding is that she gave him uh, a small portable stereo or radio as a tribute uh, for his uh, on-the-field exploits. Yes, and from there on, the tabloids went nuts, and our good old friends at the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner, who Jeff Prescott can agree with, really blew that story up, and uh, they had those two as an item for weeks and weeks. They did indeed. And this was in the 60s, where it wasn't so politically as correct and acceptable as it is now for a mixed-race couple to be out in public. But there was Doris out in the stands rooting for Maury. There was Maury tipping his hat to her. 
such an amazing time. And it's interesting about Drysdale and Koufax. It was not only a star-crossed team, but of course the Dodgers had made history with, of course, the historic entry of Jackie Robinson uh, less than 15 years earlier when he came into baseball to break the color line. And the Dodgers were a team that had very good relations among all of the players. And it was uh, public knowledge that both Drysdale and Koufax got along very well with all of their teammates, especially their African-American teammates. Jane Levy talks about this at great detail in her biography yeah, on great Koufax. Book. Great and, book. And I think what's interesting about that is how some of those players acknowledged Koufax and Drysdale as being cool, hip. Well, and, and you're a kid. I was raised in L.A. in the inner city almost, northeast Los Angeles. It was a melting pot. The color barrier, what was the color barrier? The color barrier to us was, do you have a black Schwinn bicycle or a red Schwinn bicycle? <laughs> Likewise color with us. Our, our heroes, Maury Wills, Jim Gilliam, as you say, but then Wally Moon. You know, the the black kids, uh, they worship Wally Moon and Duke Snyder, Johnny Roseboro. I want to be a catcher like Johnny Roseboro. Ron Fairley, you know, white bread, white guy. He'd go down to South Los Angeles. He had his biggest following as if he went up to Burbank or Van Nuys. And it, they were the melting pot team. To me, the L.A. Dodgers were the all-American team. Willie Davis, Johnny Padres, you know, just the guys. And you'd go out and after a game at Chavez Ravine, the guys would come out, come outside the stadium, hang out with the kids. They did. Wow. Hey, guys, how's it going? Wow. Especially, especially Drysdale. Yeah. Drysdale is like somebody's, somebody's big brother or cousin. They come out and toss the ball around and crack jokes and ask a kid for a piece of bubble gum. He was the crowd pleaser. He wow. really was. There is a, a, a very touching story that the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, news writer Jim Murray of the Los Angeles Times published about Don Drysdale in August of 1961. And he actually did some research on what you just noted, Mike, except it has a very touching side to it. And what he recounts, he eyewitnessed, is that it occurred at Candlestick Park, I believe, that Drysdale spent over 45 minutes in a conversation with a deaf-mute couple, and the conversation occurred via a scratch pad. That's right. Mm. And uh, Drysdale made no effort to try to hurry them along, but they just spent a lot of time talking about small mundane things, about what did you have for dinner, about cats, about what you do at home. And it was so touching and so beautiful. And what was interesting about it is that Murray notes that Drysdale had actually been in the midst of a bridge game with some of his teammates, but he put aside that time to spend this quality time with the fans. And I know this is just one of many examples of, of these Dodgers giving of themselves to their fans and to the community. And he never forgot his roots. He was... He was L.A.'s big brother. He was mm -hmm. raised out in San Fernando Valley, and Van Nuys was where he came from. Of course, he played in Brooklyn for a while, but came back out to the L.A. Dodgers, and he was just that kind of guy, big old lovable smile, and and some of his exploits on the mound. Uh, you know, he, people were proud of the fact, uh, you hit one of his guys, he's going to hit two of yours. <laughs> yeah. And he enforced that, too. Uh, he was somebody that we... And you mentioned that with the, uh, the deaf couple, George. Now, we're talking Don Drysdale. He's a 1962 Cy Young Award winner. This show will probably air probably in late 2011, but we'll air it again sometime or a couple of times in 2012, 50 years later. Now, I bet the 2012 Cy Young Award winner, whoever that will be, couldn't come close mm. to having the people skills and the fan skills 
that Don Drysdale is known to be in. And that's not attacking anybody or anyone who's up mm -hmm. for the Cy Young, but I'm talking, here's a Cy Young Award winner who had other things to do. Brand new 61, 62 Corvette out in the parking lot, and he probably, there was people he probably would rather be with, but there were his fans. And it, you could be a seven-year-old with a, with a worn-out gray t-shirt and some old beat-up sneakers, and uh, with chocolate all over your face after a game, or you could be a couple who just <laughs> in awe of one of their legends and take the time. And, and he, it was real. It wasn't, here, give me that kid. Let me sign it so I can get out of here. Yeah. He'd sit there and spend time, just like you say. And that was a classic Jim Murray remembrance of Don Drysdale, the man. George, I, I was just going to say, it, it almost seems like Don Drysdale and his ilk were cut from different molds, something that you don't see today. Very definitely, very definitely. When you listen to their interviews from that time or you read their autobiographies, it was always about the team and their relationship with their teammates. In fact, Drysdale himself used to, and as did Koufax, by the way, they always put accomplishments as a team ahead of any individual accomplishments. And as a practical matter, for all of the records they set, they could have even had even more impressive records but they always put the team first, and that is how they were brought up. And I remember Drysdale saying later on, years later, when he became a broadcaster with the L.A. Dodgers, and at that time, uh, Kirk Gibson was the big star with L.A., that Drysdale noted that uh, Gibson, while being an exceptional player, would have been just a, a regular player in his era in the sense that uh, having the uh, bonding with the teammates and, and playing for the team and giving of yourself to the fans. Mm -hmm. So very clearly a different era. George, talk to us a little bit about this paper that your dad and yourself have written. I know that we've kind of gotten started talking about Don Drysdale, Sandy Koufax, but talk to us a little bit about how this paper came about and how you and your dad decided to compose this paper. Well, my father and I, like so many fathers and sons, bonded over baseball, but in our case it was a little different because my father uh, immigrated here from Greece in the 1950s, became a, an American citizen, and uh, he actually had the opportunity to learn about baseball by listening on the radio while he was studying. And then when I was growing up, we would listen to the games together. And so for us, we would hear this magical voice of Vin Scully describe the words I view of all of the exploits of these great Dodger teams, Mari Wills, the pitching exploits of uh, Drysdale and Koufax, the moonshots of Wally Moon, Tommy Davis's slashing line drives. And so this was an opportunity for us to revisit that era. But also what was interesting was that my dad, being a mathematician and a physics professor, used it as an opportunity to teach me about the nature of the curveball and the fastball as described by Vin Scully when calling the action of these two great pitchers. And so in our paper, we actually explained the physics of uh, what made the Koufax and Drysdale pitching style so unique and memorable to this day. And then, of course, there's some uh, personal remembrance that I'd like to share as well concerning my dad's uh, coming of age as an American citizen uh, regarding baseball and Drysdale. Okay, we're going to come back with our good friend, George Halulakis, and we are going to hear about what it was like growing up with a baseball nut for a dad. My dad loved the Dodgers, but he was nowhere in the league of George's dad. Uh, this guy's a walking, a mathematician who also knows baseball statistics. Imagine what was talked about at their dinner table during the 60s and 70s when we come back right here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. 
Reese has a way with Dodger rookies or Sandlot youngsters. Pee-wee, you do a lot of work with boys. Not work, Al. I like baseball and kids. I enjoy helping teenagers start right. Oh, that's around shaving age. And you give them pointers on personal appearance, too? Yes. A boy has more self-respect when he's clean-shaved. I tell him to use a Gillette razor, Al. You said it. The Gillette Super Speed Razor. And today there are three. Light for sensitive skin and most younger men. Regular for average skin and beard. Heavy for men who like the heft and feel of a heavier razor. Each is different, precisely engineered. One has the right blade edge exposure, edge angle, and weight to shave you in a breeze. Comfortable, good-looking shaves you may never have had before. And convenient, you change blades and rinse clean so. Choose your Gillette Super Speed Razor. $1.29 with Gillette Blue Blade Dispenser in handy travel case. Welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside, your retro talk program here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. We're here with our good friend, our great friend, George Halalakos. We're talking about baseball today, and uh, we just talked a little bit about the, the boys of summer, Don Drysdale, Sandy Koufax, and George is sharing some of his uh, memories about uh, those days. George, uh, getting back to this fantastic paper that you and your dad have written. Talk to us a little bit about some of the the popular cultural things that were happening in conjunction with these great baseball games that were happening out here on the West Coast. Well, it's interesting. If you go back to that period, the sense of community in Southern California was held together by everyone listening and following to the great Dodger games on your transistor radio. And the dominant radio station at that time, and still a dominant presence to this very day, was KFI Radio, 6.40 a.m., with a 50,000-watt clear channel station that blasted their programs all over the western part of the United States, including Southern California. And given the fact that the Dodgers, when they arrived in Los Angeles, were an instant success and were so very popular and riding high in the standings throughout that time, Throughout that period, you could go anywhere in Southern California, from the San Fernando Valley to the San Gabriel Valley, from the mountains to the deserts to the ocean, and you could hear all over the L.A. and Southern California Basin the voice of Vin Scully calling the game. I remember in my own neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley, you could walk up the neighborhood during a hot summer night, and you would not miss a single pitch, especially when Drysdale and Koufax were pitching. It was a unique time. I look at Southern California now, and you see people that are walking around with their cell phones, with their MP3 players or their iPods, and they're connected to their own music or to their own interests, but they're not connected to each other. What was so interesting about that time is that you could be going anywhere to a restaurant, to the movies, after church, and what were people talking about? The Dodgers. Right on a, like you say, on a front porch, I remember... The neighbors next door to my grandparents' house, they would gather around on this little late transistor radio, and that was the entertainment for the night. It was too hot to go inside and watch TV, but the Dodgers were playing, so why would you want to go watch you know, whatever was on TV in the mid-60s? So that was the conversational medium. That was the networking, the community networking event of the time. And what's interesting about that, I think, Mike, is that this is well before the era of 24-7 digital media, before 
ESPN. And I remember what KFI used to do that was quite unique at the time. Uh, because the Dodgers, it seemed like, were involved in a hot pennant race seemingly every year, that they either used to do a recreation of out-of-town games that impacted the pennant race and the Dodgers, or alternatively, during Dodger games, they had live phone hookups with correspondents who were at games that had a direct impact on the pennant race. So you would hear what was going on in Candlestick Park in San Francisco, or you hear what was going on in Crosley Field in Cincinnati, or Sportsman's Park, St. Louis, all at the same time. Boy, I hate to see what those long-distance bills must have looked at at the time. Yeah, those were very pricey open lines. But this is what they used to do. And, That's how and, they'd call the games across coast to coast. And KFI Radio was the one that brought these KFI. games to you all the time. Yeah, Clear Channel. But, you know, you mentioned the neighbors gathering around listening to the transistor radio or, or the old tabletop radio set in the cafe or the, the burger joint. You could get a lot of good arguments going in those games, too. I remember yeah. if you were an old, diehard Brooklyn Dodgers fan and you were listening to an L.A. Dodgers, all you ever heard was, not as good as they were in 46. <laughs> or not as good as when Branch Rickey was running the show. Believe me, that was a different day in the history of these bums. And ah, 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 ah. You could get yourself, especially when not only the Brooklyn Dodgers, but get a conversation going against a pro San Francisco Giants fan listening to a Dodgers game at a Bob's Big Boy. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> especially, when the, especially when the subject matter was, is Gaylord Perry loading the ball up with Vaseline tonight, or is Don Drysdale going to put a fastball through a guy's forehead? And yeah. what's so interesting about all of that, when we look back at that time, is that baseball in the 1950s was a very dangerous oftentimes a violent sport uh, mm. that carried over from that early post-war period. There were beanball wars, uh, and as you correctly noted, Mike, uh, Drysdale, who was a star pupil of Sal Magley, holds the National League record for most hits batsmen with 154. And those duels that he had with uh, Frank Robinson and Hank Aaron were legendary. You know, I find it interesting when you're talking about radio, um, George, this not only were people interested in the in the game itself, it kind of provided a sense of community. Everybody was listening to the same thing. Kind of everybody was part of this great big circle. Like you, and tell us a little bit about that. Walking down the street, down the alley, and you hear Vince Scully's voice echoing from the walls. Uh, well, it's interesting about that. Uh, Scully's voice really transcended everywhere and it actually started the tradition actually started when the when the Dodgers played their first four years in the uh, cavernous environment of the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum which of course uh, was originally built for the Olympics in mm -hmm. 1932 and designed for football but the Dodgers played there their first four years and they configured an odd-looking baseball field <laughs> that... Uh, With a 250-foot left field line. The Chinese wall, that they called <laughs> the it. The Chinese wall. Where <laughs> Wally Moon hit his moonshots. Pitchers had no chance. No. On that left field wall. That's true, yeah. And they were so far removed from the field of play that they brought their transistor radios to the game, right. and they listened to Vin Scully describe that. Then later on, when they transferred to Dodger Stadium in 1962, they continued this tradition. And Roger Angel, the famous baseball writer for the New Yorker magazine for the last 50 years, noted that 
Everybody at Dodger Stadium, as they did at the LA Coliseum, always had their transistor radio to verify that what they were actually seeing as it was called by Vin Scully. In fact, I remember going to my first Dodger game that there was no PA system because Scully's voice was being heard throughout the whole uh, stadium. Everybody had their transistor radio. And I remember the kids at school said, okay, George, remember you got to take two things to the game, your mitt and your transistor radio. That's right. That's right. And you could go out there and and nowadays they call them tailgate parties, but back then everybody had station wagons and mom and dad would go, or our dad and one of our neighbors would take the boy and the younger kids, they would take them out around seventh inning, and they were conked out. So they put them in the back of the station wagon and lock the door, <laughs> go back to the game. Nobody was kidnapped, yeah, nobody was yeah, assaulted or anything. Yeah. But the, you'd go back out in the parking lot. And the other thing is, we did. You didn't go to the bathroom at Dodger Stadium. The seventh inning didn't mean much. When you went to the bathroom or when you went to get a hot dog, you went to get a cold drink, was when Jerry Doggett took over. Always. <laughs> right? Always. <laughs> Jerry Doggett. Got one there, George. He was a, For folks out there, if you never heard of Jerry Doggett, he was a second banana to Vin Scully. And Jerry Doggett was usually the signal that Vin Scully needed to go to the bathroom and uh, take a Vicks cough drop. And, or get a know, drink of water. Gargoyle Listerine, clear his throat, get some gum. And when Jerry took over, that was a signal the rest of us did, too. So you'd see this massive exodus out the seat because of the transistor radios on wow, KFI. Yeah. It wasn't the park announcer. It was Jerry Doggett, so everybody the transistor radio <laughs> were suddenly in line at, at the, uh, at the uh, concession stands wow. for what those was, Dodger dogs. And what was so much fun at the time, again, just hearkening back to such a different era, at that time, um, baseball games, including the World Series, were pretty much confined to daylight hours. Mm-hmm particularly the World Series. I remember going to school that it was a big thrill that when the Dodgers were playing, the principal would set up a little radio in the lunch shelter. And then we were allowed to go home at 2.30 in the afternoon so we could run home and catch those final innings, especially when Koufax or Drysdale was pitching. You didn't want to miss that. And so very, very different. And my father, uh, who worked for the defense industry, said that... uh, the same thing was uh, was going on there as well. That people would would because uh, you were not allowed to bring in radios at the time. Um, you had to go out to the to your car and listen to the game on on the on the car radio. Oh wow! So well, I remember that when our, my teacher actually brought the radio in. That was it was in springtime. I'm sh- it was a '63 season. And when Koufax, when the word came out that Koufax was in the eighth inning and pitching an almost perfect game. The teacher dropped all studies and brought the radio in because Koufax was going to pitch the perfect game. And, of course, he got wiped, he got wiped out by the likes of Willie McCovey and Orlando Zapata and Willie Mays, uh, also well-known guys. This was news-breaking. This was, forget about social studies. We're going to watch Koufax pitch the perfect <laughs> game today. And that's what Jim Murray, with, with the written word, was able to bring out as well. Right. In that same month, in August of 1961, he published an article on Koufax, and he mm-hmm. said... You know, he goes, when you listen to Sandy Koufax, he says, there is a better than 50-50 chance that you're going to listen to history being made, that a record that has stood since 1900 is going to be either tied or broken when this man pitches. And this is, again, at a time when when you did not see games on TV. It was pretty much carried over the airwaves, and the only time you saw on television was Saturday, game of the week. Hmm. the only thing that got in the way of Koufax's perfect game was the three and two walk to Ed Bailey, or Koufax would have pitched the perfect game. But Kof- these guys were record setters in their own. And uh, to George, one thing, 
in 63, I'm sure it was 63, that when a Major League Baseball expanded the strike zone, right? Actually, yes, it was so in 1962, these, these 63. Pitching these pitching powerhouse genius maniacs like Kofak and Drysdale went to town on the batters. When the strike zone was expanded, these guys who are already the best at what they did became the greatest at what they did. They certainly did. In fact, their uh, their immortality has been enshrined not only in Cooperstown, but also in, of all places, Rod Serling's Twilight, Twilight Zone. Zone. Yeah, talk Absolutely. to us about that. Yeah. Well, in, in the early years of Twilight Zone, Rod Serling, who was a very avid baseball fan, in fact, a Brooklyn Dodger fan specifically, he wrote an episode titled The Mighty Casey. Mm -hmm. And in this particular episode, it concerns a fictitious baseball team named the Hoboken Zephyrs that moved from the East Coast to the West Coast and later becomes a dynasty known for its stalwart pitching. And what was interesting about this story is that in the closing narration, Serling makes a direct reference to Walter O'Malley and also to Drysdale and Koufax, but he does so in a very subtle manner. He changes the name of the owner from O'Malley to McGarry, and then he doesn't specifically say Drysdale and Koufax by name, but he mentions that uh, they had a pitching staff that made history and that these guys didn't smile very much because they pitched like nothing human. And that you can find out more by looking under B, under baseball in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> and it was interesting because originally when Serling wrote this script, he originally had the Brooklyn Dodgers penned in, but then switched it to a fictitious name. They ended up filming it at Hollywood Baseball Park in Los Angeles. And then many, many years later in the early 2000s, when Twilight Zone was revitalized as a radio show, this episode was done and they made a slight alteration at the very end. The narrator, this time Stacy Keach, specifically mentions Drysdale and Koufax. Wow. Perhaps as a tribute to Serling's uh, original idea of featuring the Dodgers. So uh, this is a time, as, as we note here, when you have all the stars properly aligned. Were they, they were so opposite culturally and by background. One raised in what, Brooklyn? Correct. The other in Van Nuys. Were they, though, kindred spirits, George? They really Koufax were. Koufax and Drysdale? They were. The, these were two men that were linked together at an incredibly opportunistic moment in time and for and 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 legendary because of their pitching exploits because of their on field and off the field friendship and then of course the fact that they formed uh, their own players union in 1966 they actually yeah. held out for more money got what they asked for and this is before the era of free agency before the uh, players' unions, and they made history of their own, not, only, right. not only in the context of baseball uh, performance, but also uh, player relations. Probably among the first major or minor Major League Baseball stars in history to, to boycott spring training after the, before the 66 season. The Dodgers guy at the time, Buzzy Bavese, was playing one against the other, trying to get him mm. cheaper and cheaper. Well, they went out and had dinner together, Koufax and Drysdale, and said, hey, how come How come you're asking for mo more money than he's willing to give me? And he goes, well, that's funny. Bavese said the same thing to me yesterday. Uh -huh. So they teamed up and took Dodger management on and boycotted spring training wow. and, and basically won. They Got did. Their way. Wow. They did. And when they came back, then they repeated by winning another National League yep. pennant in 1966. Good story on the dynamics of these two working together. Uh, they I, were. I think they were kindred spirits. They yeah. were indeed. They were indeed. And 
My dad and I have a actually kind of an interesting personal connection with both uh, that, that that I would like to share with you. Uh, yes, that, that I think is kind of interesting. With regards to Sandy Koufax, I remember that uh, he made history of sorts when he refused to pitch the opening game of the World Series be- to celebrate Yom Kippur. And I remember my father telling me at the time, he said, you see, son, he said, here you have, you know, one of the best pitchers ever in history, but he knows what his priorities are. He puts his faith first. Mm-hmm. And then I remember not long afterwards, a couple of years later, when we went to our first baseball game, we saw Don Drysdale pitch when he set uh, the record for consecutive shutouts. My father, who had been made an American citizen just a few years earlier, had said to me, you know, son, I would like to be able to sing the national anthem in public word for word. At that time, you actually sang the national anthem. Everyone joined mm-hmm. in. They didn't just watch and stand by. And as it, wasn't a, it wasn't a disco hip-hop show. No. Yeah. It was very serious. Yeah. So yeah. I wrote out on a three-by-five card the words to the national anthem. I was in school at the time, and I wrote it out, brought it home. So when we went to the game, my father and I, when the national anthem came on, we properly had our hats taken mm-hmm. off over our hearts. My father was holding the three-by-five card, and he did the national anthem for the first time. Wow. And, uh, and then, of course, we witnessed history that night. Wow. Well, 25 years later, Don Drysdale uh, passed away unexpectedly, and my father was the one that gave me the news. He telephoned me, and he said, Son, I don't know if you know, but Don Drysdale passed away. And so we were reminiscing about that game. Mm-hmm. And would you believe it, guys, that that's when I found out that my dad still had that three-by-five card in his billfold. So for us, you know, when we think about that time, it was so magical in so many ways. In a way, for my father, it was, for him, a, a way of becoming a part of American culture. What a wonderful story, George. I, you know, there, there's, there's more to it otherwise, you know, other than just talking about the, the sports angle. There's also the personal angle and what a moving story that is. And we're going to talk to you a little bit more about that in a little bit. But right now we're going to pause for our next retro commercial. We'll be back with our good friend George Holalakos. We're talking about baseball, lots of wonderful baseball memories. And we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. It's light up time. Be happy, go lucky. It's light up time. For the taste that you like, light up the lucky strike. Relax. It's light up time. That's the way to enjoy your baseball. Get out early. Look over the lineups and light up a lucky. You'll be way ahead of the game, because lucky sure taste better. Everybody knows LSMFT. Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. And then that naturally good-tasting tobacco is toasted. It's toasted to taste even better. So join millions of lucky fans. Make your next carton Lucky Strike. For the taste that you like, light up a Lucky Strike. Right now. Light up a Lucky. It's light up time. You'll say it's the best tasting cigarette you ever smoked. LSMFT. Lucky strike means hope your health premiums are paid oh, because boy. it's not the 50s anymore and you won't see you won't see movie stars or baseball players on the back of magazines touting the toasted. Not uh, anymore. You can get your esophageal uh, airway toasted, but that is Lucky Strike, one of the most famous brands from Absolutely. the past, and that was our retromercial. Welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. We have our Good buddy here, George Halalak is here to tell us more about the glory days of, of baseball sitting out on a, 
on a spring evening at your favorite baseball park. We've been talking a lot about Dodger Stadium and the old Coliseum, some of the other venues, but uh, this is what we call an evergreen story because even though we've talked about a few of our favorite Dodgers being LA guys, uh, you can just jump in and plug in the names of your favorite Major League Baseball guys. And you know, before we get back to George, uh, he's taking a break here, getting his notes together. You can't believe a guy like George takes a break, can you, Smith? No, my gosh. Uh, wow. just, George is just fantastic. Walking sports on Oh, absolutely, yes. We're going to renew his contract. We are. We're going to renew it. Get Branch Rickey on the line, <laughs> yes. please. Call him right on yes. the long-distance telephone. Not Buzzy Bavese. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we did lose a few notables since our last visit with you here on Galaxy Nostalgia Network. And, Smitty, you want to tell us about some of the folks who are no longer with us? I sure will, Mike. We have a few obituaries uh, of note that we want to share with you. Sid Melton, a jug-eared character actor best known for his regular roles in the television shows Green Acres and The Danny Thomas Show, and as the comic relief actor in many science fiction and noir films of the 50s, died on November 2nd in Burbank, California. He was 94 years old. Mr. Melton was an actor for more than 70 years. Some of the many films he appeared in were Treasure of Monte Cristo, Mask of the Dragon, and Lost Continent. In a Saturday morning children's show of the early 1950s titled Captain Midnight, he was the hero's sidekick, Ichabod Mudd. Among his TV work, Mr. Melton appeared in, on the sitcom The Danny Thomas Show from 1959 to 1964, playing Uncle Charlie Harper, the owner of the nightclub where Danny Williams, the character played by Danny Thomas, performed. He also appeared as a regular on Green Acres from 1965 to 1971. That was Sid Melton. Andy Rooney, the CBS News 60 Minutes commentator known to generations for his wry, humorous, and contentious television essays, died November 4th in New York City of complications following minor surgery. He was 92 years old. Although most recently remembered for his long-running essays on 60 Minutes, Mr. Rooney worked for more than 60 years at CBS and began as a writer and producer at the dawn of television. He was hired by CBS in 1949 after a chance encounter in the elevator with Arthur Godfrey. Rooney told the biggest radio star of the day he could use some better writing. His nerve moved Godfrey to hire him for Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, which moved to television and became a top ten hit that was number one in 1952. And he also wrote for Godfrey's other primetime program, Arthur Godfrey and His Friends, and the Star's Daily Morning Show. He also wrote for The Gary Moore Show, helping it to achieve hit status as a top 20 program. And such regularly featured talents as Victor Borgie, Bob and Ray, and Perry Como spoke the words written by Andy Rooney during this period. But it is for the essays he delivered each week on 60 Minutes that Mr. Rooney is best remembered. His essays resonated with viewers. They pointed out daily unspoken truths and observations, or he would complain about daily subtleties each of us might encounter. He was regarded as a curmudgeon for these direct observations. He told the Associated Press in 1988, quote, I obviously have a knack for getting on paper what a lot of people have thought and didn't realize they thought. Some of Andy Rooney's commentaries were not without controversy. However, most of his work was enjoyed by millions every week. He was also an author of several books and had his own syndicated newspaper column. November 6th, Hal Cantor, an Emmy Award-winning comedy writer, director, and producer whose career included writing for Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, Directing Elvis Presley and creating a landmark 1960s TV series, died in Encino, California at the age of 92. Mr. Cantor began his career as a writer in radio in the late 1930s. In 1949, he became head writer for The Ed Wynn Show on television. 
Later, he created and headed the writing team on The George Goebel Show, another live comedy variety television program. Between 1968 and 71, Mr. Cantor created and produced the NBC sitcom Julia, starring Diane Carroll. He was also a writer and producer on the comedy series Chico and the Man, and in 1975 was executive producer for All in the Family. Among his movie credits as a writer are Bob Hope and Bing Crosby's Road to Bali, Hope's Bachelor in Paradise, and Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis's Money from Home. He also directed Elvis Presley in the 1957 movie Loving You, which Cantor co-wrote. And he also wrote the screenplay for Presley's 1961 film Blue Hawaii. On November 7th, Joe Frazier, former heavyweight boxing champion, died at the age of 67 in Philadelphia. Known as Smokin' Joe Frazier, he won 32 fights in all, 27 by knockout, and he lost four times, twice to Muhammad Ali and twice to George Foreman. It was his furious and intensely personal fights with Ali that are still remembered to this day. His career was defined by this rivalry. He told Playboy in 1973, Work is the only meaning I've ever known. Like the man in the song, I just gotta keep on moving on. And finally, Don Hickman, an American radio and television broadcaster, died on November 19th at the age of 74. Mr. Hickman had been with WICS in Springfield, Illinois, since 1972, but he began his career in radio in 1957. He covered many of the civil rights stories of the day. After switching to television, Mr. Hickman covered the enrollment of James Meredith, the first black student at the University of Mississippi, in 1961. And in 1968, he was the first to report on the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jr. And those are the, all the obituaries for this time. We remember all those who have, we have just mentioned, and as always, we keep you informed here on Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight of any passings of note. Thank you, Smitty. That was great. Uh, Smoking Joe Fraser, my, one of my favorites of all time. Yes, he, he just got in there and, and worked his job. No, he sure did. No glitz, no glamour, no big mouth. He just got in there and and earned his pay. He did. And, he uh, most certainly did. We lost a lot of a lot of good a lot ones. A lot of good and ones there. Folks, yeah. if you know of someone, a notable that has passed away in the past, uh, email us and we'll do a feature. We'll be happy to, especially if you have memories that go along with with that. We're back here on Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight here on Galaxy Nostalgia Network with our compadre George Halalakos. I think George, I think maybe you and I are kindred spirits too. You told that story and I, I was teary eyed about your dad singing the national anthem at a Dodgers game and keeping the three by five card. You know, my grandfather immigrated from Greece and I don't remember him. He passed away when I was very young, but I remember the listening to the people who knew him very well, Gus Speliotopoulos, and uh, he worked on the Pasadena Freeway in 1940. And I remember him telling people he was so proud to be a part of that because that was the first, they called it a parkway or expressway, but they later became known as freeways. And he told people, and they thought, no, this is just Los Angeles because it's crowded. No, the way America's moving, there will be thousands of these freeways in the next 50 or 60 years. Mm -hmm. And I am mm. so proud to be over here and be an American mm. because there'll be thousands, but there will only be a few of us that say we helped to build the first one in America. Mm -hmm. And almost like your dad's three by five cards, he was so proud of being involved in a historical event in our country, that being the Pasadena Freeway. So, uh, George, let's pick it up. I know we left off with some memories here, and we've got about 10 minutes, maybe eight minutes left in the show. So, uh, rock and roll, brother. Well, I think one of the other fun things that occurred during this time, and, and we think about this now, it seems even quaint in this uh, marketing era that we live in, 
But the local business brands that hooked up with the Dodgers when they moved to uh, Los Angeles, that's just amazing and how that, uh, how that affected the, the history, uh, not only locally, but also in the context of business and just a, a cultural phenomena. Some of the ones that immediately come to mind are uh, Union Oil 76, which for a long time was the sole advertiser uh, in the stadium in terms of actual signage. That's right. And then another one that comes to mind is Farmer John's, the maker of Dodger Dogs, still to this day the maker of Dodger Dogs. And of course, Bell Brand Potato Chips, uh, a local brand of potato chips that used to issue uh, in the packages baseball cards of your favorite Dodgers. I know, I have copies of those. Yes, and you're going to scan some of those for us, right, George? Absolutely. And we're going to put those on our Facebook page so Absolutely. Our, our listeners gonna, can watch can I'm going to definitely share that Great. with all of you. And another thing that comes to mind when you think about local brands hooking up, um, Vita-Packed Orange Juice, which is a, a Southern California staple here. If you grew up here, I mean, everyone knows Vita-Packed Orange Juice. Sure. But in those days, again, before we had all news uh, TV and all, all sports TV stations, Vita-Packed Orange Juice used to sponsor these little scoring updates. And if the Dodgers had won, there was somebody there standing above a, a, a sea of oranges saying, you know, we win, and they tell you the score. And if, if they lost, then he would be yeah. underneath the, the oranges holding up the sign saying, we lost. That would come up in a, in a CGI in a Chiron on wow. KTTV Channel 11. Yes. Uh, who carried the Dodgers games, right, George? Was they it did. KTTV, then KTLA? Yes, they or did. Or do I have it backwards? It's, but you, you would think, you would hear Vin Scully pitch Farmer John hot dogs, and mm. you could almost taste the hot dog. Always. And always. the Bell Brand potato chips were put on the map because of, they were the, you know, if you're a Dodger fan, you got to eat Bell Brand. You're not going to go to Laura Scudder's. Absolutely. What a marketing coup that was because it's probably very low budget stuff. And I believe that in the case of Union Oil 76, huh. that they were involved with the issuance of the bonds that were used to finance the construction yeah. of the They ponied Dodger up Stadium. the money for the bonds, and that Union 76, that big red ball was there as long as I could remember. And I moved away in 87 from LA, and it was still there. So it probably came down. Who knows what's there now? I, I'm not sure. But it doesn't matter because the biggies were 76 Union. And remember, if you went to the 76 Union gas station, they'd give you that same ball for your car antenna. Yeah. Always. Yeah. That yeah. was a styrofoam ball. Yes. That yeah. was so much fun that, oh, you, that, that, you could, that you could do that. I always just kind of like to reflect on the food memories. And certainly the hot dogs, uh, the peanuts, yes. uh, Cracker Jacks, candy bars. Uh, any particular food memories, George? <laughs> well, what I'm... What I'm I'm remembering about that era was that there have been actually, uh, I think, generations of people that have been involved with the food vending business mm -hmm. at Dodger Stadium that actually worked in the Coliseum and then continued that uh, at Dodger Stadium and that uh, were involved, I guess, with other similar type of business opportunities with the other local oh, yeah. sports teams. There were celebrities in their own. The Peanut Man, the Dodger Peanut Man, I think his name was Roger Owens. Yes. Mm -hmm. He could he could take a bag of peanuts, and I've been out there and watched him. He could throw them halfway across the stands and get them right to the customer. Wow. Sometimes, but he, he was a celebrity in his own. He was actually on TV. Sometimes you wish that they were out on the mound. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. they were more accurate than some of the pitchers. Well, and they had a lot of a lot of the more infamous celebrities that would go to the Dodger games. A lot of the celebrities would arrive drunk or leave drunk. Uh, you had Morgana, who was the voluptuous... Kissing bandit. The kissing bandit who would show up <laughs> once in a while, and I think... I think 
she wasn't a Koufax or Drysdale fan, but she'd go nuts when Osteen was pitching. Oh, uh, absolutely. That, that was her guy. That was her guy. <laughs> Osteen. I guess she liked the underdog. You know, that's kind of like us. Who knew? <laughs> it's interesting to to note, thinking about Drysdale here, because when he passed away unexpectedly, his successor, who remains in that position to this very day, was former Dodger outfielder Rick Monday, Rick Monday who, of mm-hmm. course, hit the famous home run that won the National League pennant for the Dodgers in 1981. But ironically, what Rick Monday is most well-known and most beloved for in Los Angeles occurred when he was not a member of the Dodgers, but I believe it was the year before he was brought to L.A. in a trade from Chicago. He had rescued the American flag from being torched by uh, two fans that ran on the field, and, and for whatever reason that possessed them, they decided they wanted to torch uh. the American flag. It was before the start of the game, and Monday rescued the flag, mm-hmm. and uh, that sort of uh, became immortalized uh, in baseball lore, and wow. uh, I think that always made Rick Monday a, a, a fan favorite. I'm glad Rick Monday got to the flag before yeah. Tommy Lasorda got to the clown net through the flag. Oh, gosh. And the yeah. Dodger blew it. It would have been pretty. They would have been... Picking that guy up with a teaspoon, huh? Exactly. By the yeah. way, happy birthday, Rick Mundy. November 20th, he turned 66. Wonderful. wonderful. Double sixes. Rick Double Mundy, sixes. one of my all-time favorite, Great. him and Gibby, Kirk Gibson. Oh, wonderful. We're getting close to the end of the show, but before we leave it, George, any information for us about collectibles from that time period? You mentioned the Bell Brand uh, uh, cards. What other collectibles are out there that people are collecting? And any idea, any value on any of these items? Well... I'm not aware of, of the values because they, they change. It right. seems like almost okay. day to day. But um, at the time, there was a gentleman by the name of Danny Goodman who was the chief yeah. concessionaire at Dodger Stadium. And they had a lot of really neat items, uh, including World Series programs from that era, uh, as well as yearbooks, uh, money clips, yeah. buttons, uh, scarves. Bobbleheads, right? Bobbleheads, yeah. records. Uh, that are all from that era, including some. Uh, in fact, you can actually tune into some of the YouTube clips, and you can hear some of uh, some of the Dodger stars, yeah. including Willie Davis and Mari Wills, strumming the banjo and singing. <laughs> and so, a lot of these uh, collectibles are out there. Some of which were officially branded by the yeah. Dodgers, others of which were just uh, sp- spun off on their own. A yes. lot of the Dodger collectibles, I believe, are, are paper based. Uh, okay. Union seventy six seventy six gave out the prints, the nice prints. Yes. I still got mine of Frank Howard and uh, I forgot. I got Frank Howard and I got Tom I got Tommy Davis and Willie Davis. But every week they would have a new print come out in a season and if you got those you probably got something pretty collectible. They were yeah. numbered prints. Only given out when you got gas. It was a gasoline premium. And so of fact, course my mom went to Union seventy six to get gas. And in fact, I believe that those prints were there's an interesting history behind them. Those prints were used in the 1963 World Series program when the Dodgers swept the right. Yanks four straight. That's but it was right. originally slated for 1962, but it didn't happen because the Giants upset the Dodgers in a three-game playoff. Yep. And those very same prints were displayed uh, at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel right. in Los wow. Angeles. Good point. And they had to redo some of them because they showed some of them showed the Coliseum in the background. And, of course, in 63... They moved cross town. Yes. Wow. So they had to redo those. But those are highly collectible. The little wooden baseball bats are probably good, but it'd be hard to date a lot of them because they were pretty generic to L.A. Dodgers that have the logo. But 
probably your your pennants. Uh, you see pennants in thrift stores, the yeah, major you do. league pennants and the Dodgers pennants. I think if you go farther back into the 60s and 50s, the more valuable. But like we tell all our listeners, go to eBay. Don't throw anything away. Don't 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 give anything away at a garage sale for a dollar. Chances are, if it's a Dodgers, no matter how you may have despised the Dodgers after they got on the bus and took off. Took off from Brooklyn. It's going to be valuable if it's right. collectible. And we talk about the bobblehead dolls, but I believe the bobbleheads only came out in 2001. I believe that that's was the first true. year. So if somebody tells you they got a 1959 bobblehead doll of Larry Sherry, then uh, there's something wrong. Yeah, beware. Yes. Call yeah. the Galaxy Network police at once. <laughs> yes. Yes. I yeah. believe uh, there was a collectible store, Field of Dreams. That yes, they, Field that, of Dreams. That yeah. they had, Vegas um, has a number of them. Yeah, they have a number of, of collectibles that were signed by Don Drysdale yeah. and others from that same era. I know that Koufax does a little bit, but it's very limited. Yeah. Probably anything Drysdale, anything the superstars. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. Duke Snyder's the hottest thing around as far as baseball card collectibles. Yeah. Also magazines from that era. Sure. Like I have, I have, for example, the Life magazine of Koufax in August 1963. Oh, oh wow. Which gives us this great revelation that Koufax made his own hi-fi stereo. With yeah, his, he did. With, by his own hands. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how did. easily satisfied we were back then. That's one of the most interesting stories I've ever read. It was almost like a Heath kid. It was a, yeah. He got it at Dow Radio in Pasadena, which I, I used to frequent. Yeah. Dow Radio was a big shop for radio heads. Oh, and he got the speakers from an old Packer Bell TV set. How about that? And he made his own hi-fi set. we got to get him into your place. I think he made his own Walkman, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) If you read Jane Levy's biography, it talks about a little attache case. Yeah, and Don Drysdale, he would have done all right if he would have done Beanball Babies. Yeah, he would have. Yeah, (laughs) I know. Who's your favorite guy that Drysdale ever beaned? Oh, I think it's got to be Frank Clemente? Robinson. Yeah, Frank Robinson. That <laughs> a duel going. Robinson used to hang over the plate. In fact, I was told by I was asked by a Drysdale family member, did I know who who was the one he hit the most? And I said, I think it's got to be Robinson because he used to hang right over the plate, didn't give an inch, and Drysdale wasn't going to give him an inch either. So <laughs> something gave. Then there was the Dick, the Dick Deets. Yeah. Of course. Of yeah. course, that's legendary. Wow. But that's probably for another episode because. Unfortunately, we've got to leave. We've got to end the show. This the hour seats just, are emptying the seats right are now. Emptying. This hour just the flew by. The lights are dimming. This hour just flew by, and uh, we want to thank our good friend George Halawakos for joining us. George is going to be with us on many more upcoming shows, lots of good topics that we're going to be talking about, so we look forward to having George with us uh, again on future shows. In the meantime, we do want to invite you to drop us a line. We do want to hear from you. Our email address is galaxymoonbeamnightside at gmail.com, galaxymoonbeamnightside at gmail.com. Our website, galaxymoonbeamnightside.com. You can download any of our past 70-plus programs on our website, and uh, including this one here. And in addition to that, we also have a page on Facebook, the Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight page on Facebook. We're going to post some neat pictures, some scans of some of those Bell brand uh, collectibles that George is going to scan for us. And we've got lots of great pictures on there, including Jeff Prescott's newspapers and uh, George's uh, Lost in Space and Planet of the Apes collection, too. So lots of great pictures. So we invite you to, to check out our page on Facebook. That's it for this edition of our show. We sure thank you for joining us. We've had a blast on this show. It's really been a fun show. So until next time, I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. We thank you for joining us, friends, and we ask you to be with us again next time.
This is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.